Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. I am very excited to be here with you all this morning as we continue our series, Better Than Perfect, a look at the life of David. And so as we have seen throughout the series, David was a fascinating man. He was an extraordinary poet. He was a talented musician. He was a mighty warrior and a brilliant politician. And he was also the greatest king in the history of Israel. David was like one of those guys who you want to be friends with, but at the same time, you secretly hate him because he hit the genetic lottery, and also he's just really good at anything that he tries. That's David. Uh, But most importantly, David was a man after God's own heart. David knew God. He loved God. He pursued God. And God is the one that delivered David from the hands of his enemies, and it was God who gave David the throne. And so we have King David, the mighty warrior with a winning smile who's got God on his side, and everything seems to be going pretty well for him. But then the story takes a dark turn, and it's not because of misfortune, and it's not because of a mighty enemy, but it's because of David's own sin. You might recall a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Ken preached on the story of David and Bathsheba. And just to give you a quick recap, uh, David was lusting after Bathsheba, and he uh, committed adultery with her, and then accidentally gets her pregnant. So he decides he's going to try to cover it up and hide it from her husband. But when the cover-up fails, he resorts to having her husband murdered, and then he takes Bathsheba as his own wife. And it's not until the prophet Nathan confronts David and exposes his sin does he finally confess uh, and own up to his sin and ask for forgiveness, uh, forgiveness that God does grant him out of his abundant mercy. Uh, But you can see from the story how sin, whenever it goes unchecked, it just multiplies exponentially, right? Temptation turned to lust turned to adultery, turned to murder. David refusing to address his sin kind of reminds me of when I was 19, I moved into my first apartment. And to celebrate moving in, I decided to make a pan of blueberry muffins as is tradition. (laughs) And when I was done making the muffins, instead of cleaning the pan, I just put the dirty pan in the sink and ran some water over it and left it there, out of sight, out of mind. Over time, more and more dishes got piled on top of that pan, and then a smell started to develop in the kitchen. Uh, Instead of investigating the source of that smell like any normal person, I would just occasionally go in there and spray some Febreze. (laughs) Then the flies started showing up, so I put out some fly traps. Then my lease was up, and it was time for me to clean up and move out, and you'll never guess what was still in the sink. That's right. That dirty pan sat in the bottom of my sink for a full year. I can feel you judging me. (laughs) So when it was time to finally clean up the kitchen, a.k.a. throw everything away because it was all disgusting, uh, I finally uncovered the dirty pan at the bottom of the sink, and it was moving. The whole pan was alive. Don't worry. Uh, I learned my lesson, right? If you take care of the dirty dishes early, then you don't have to worry about the hassle later. But you can see how everything just grew exponentially. My dirty pan turned into a moldy pan, turned into flies, turned into a really gross science experiment. 
right? Uh, unfortunately, David never quite learns his lesson. And so this theme of unchecked sin and the devastating consequences of sin will continue to haunt David and the rest of his family uh, for the rest of his life. And we're going to see this morning how quickly that spark of sin can turn into an uncontrolled blaze if it goes unaddressed. But my hope and my prayer this morning is that we all leave here with the confidence that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be set free from the clutches of sin. We can be set free from the power of sin over our lives. And so our story today is going to pick up in 2 Samuel 13. This immediately follows the story of David and Bathsheba. And we're going to be covering a lot of ground today, five chapters total. Uh, So I'm going to be paraphrasing most of the story. And if you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle now uh, to bring you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. Uh, We love you, and that's our gift to you. So before we jump in the story, there's three main characters that I want you to know about aside from David. The first one is Absalom. Absalom was one of David's sons, and he was renowned for his rugged good looks and his long, luxurious locks of hair. Second character is Amnon. Amnon was David's firstborn son, most beloved son, and he was the heir to the throne of Israel. And the third character is Tamar. Tamar was David's daughter. She was Absalom's sister and Amnon's half-sister. And like her brother Absalom, she was known for her exquisite beauty. And so 2 Samuel 13 immediately takes on a very Game of Thrones type vibe and it begins on a really weird note as we find out that Amnon is in love with his half-sister Tamar. Actually, he's not just in love with his half-sister, he is lusting after his half-sister Tamar. Actually, 2 Samuel 13 too says that he was so tormented by his lust that it made him physically ill. So this is beyond even lust. Amnon was coveting Tamar's physical body. And so with the help of a friend, Amnon devises a scheme to try to get Tamar alone in a room with him. He decides to pretend to be sick and to request that Tamar come and take care of him and cook food for him and feed him. And once he's alone in a room with her, he requests that she come over and lay with him. She immediately refuses, says, no, what are you, crazy? Right? She actually calls the request outrageous, saying that it would bring shame on her and on him. But Amnon would not listen. He was infected with sin. And so he overpowered and he raped Tamar. And then in the very next verse, verse 15, it says this. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So Amnon gave into his lust, which turned into sexual violence, which turned into hatred for his victim, Tamar, a hatred that I'm sure had a strong undercurrent of guilt and shame. And so Amnon kicks Tamar out of his house. Actually, Amnon has his servants drag Tamar out of his house and then bolt the door behind her. And immediately she puts ashes on her forehead and she rips her robes and she begins weeping out loud. And the last thing that we hear about Tamar is at the end of verse 20, where it says, So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. An absolutely gut-wrenching story. A heartbreaking portrayal of how the sins that we think are private, something like lust, they don't always stay private. 
If gone unaddressed, those sins will fester and they'll grow with devastating consequences for you and for anyone who's caught in your path. But that's not the end of the story. That can't be, right? I mean, Tamar is King David's daughter. What's going to happen when he hears about this? He's going to be outraged. Surely justice will be served. Well, you'd be half right. Let's look at the next verse, verse 21. It says this, When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And then for some of you, depending on your translation, the verse is either going to keep going or it's going to have a footnote that directs you to the bottom of the page. And it says, But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn son. So King David hears about how his firstborn son, Amnon, has sexually assaulted his daughter, Tamar, and he gets furious, and then he does nothing. He does nothing. No punishment, no consequences, nothing. What kind of justice is that? Sure, he gets upset. But then he refuses to do the hard and uncomfortable work of confronting the sins of his son and granting his daughter justice, right? Instead, he just tries to put it all in the past, pretend it doesn't happen, pretend it never happened, right? Cover it all up. And if that tactic sounds familiar, it's because he's already tried that before with Bathsheba, right? There's a reason why the story happens immediately after the story of David and Bathsheba. The narrator is implying like father, like son, Except this time, everything is amplified. Where David lusted after another man's wife, Amnon coveted his own sister until he was physically ill. Where Amnon gave in to, or where David gave in to his lust and committed adultery, Amnon sexually assaulted his sister Tamar. And where David's sins ended in murder, which is bad, Amnon's sins and David's attempts to try to sweep those sins under the rug are going to have far worse consequences, if you can imagine that. So what I want us to do now, I want us to read the next verse, verse 22, and let's see Absalom's response to all of this. Verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So Absalom, Tamar's brother, who loved Tamar dearly, didn't just get angry at Absalom. He or didn't just get angry at Amnon. He hated Amnon. Uh, in fact, it says, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, which is a poetic way of saying that Absalom went silent due to his hatred. Right? Have you ever known that type of person who when they get really, really mad, they just go quiet? Right? They don't like get angry, they don't start yelling, they don't puff up their chest, they don't start stomping around, they just go blank. And then you can't get a read on them, and it's terrifying. And my wife does that sometimes. <laughs> now, if you know my wife Kathleen, you know that she's so sweet. She really is. And she can talk to anyone about anything, anytime, anywhere. She's got the gift of gab. But if you get her really, really mad, I mean, you got to be actively trying to push her buttons then she just goes silent and then stares into your soul. And man, it's terrifying. Now, I'm pretty sure it's a tactic on her part to make sure she doesn't say something that she's going to later regret. Uh, But man, if she goes quiet, I know it's time for me to stop and to rethink some of my life choices because I've messed up somewhere. (laughs) And so Absalom has gone even beyond that that level of fury, and his fury has turned into hatred for his brother Amnon. And for two years, years. Absalom held on to that hatred for his brother until one day 
he decides it's time for Amnon to die. And so he devises a plan. And with the help of his servants, he gets Amnon drunk. And then he commands his servants that once Amnon's heart is merry with wine, to strike him down. And that's exactly what happens. Absalom has his brother Amnon murdered. So we can see Absalom's anger turned to hatred, turned to murder of his own brother. And then after Absalom has Amnon murdered, he flees and he goes into hiding for three years where that hatred didn't go away. That hatred was not quenched whenever Amnon was killed. Instead, he began to redirect that hatred towards his father, David. And the next four chapters of this story are just a heartbreaking tale of father pitted against son. And poor David just can't catch a break. Uh, Absalom actually convinces himself that he would be a better king than David. And he's able to rally enough support to lead a coup against David. And he's successful for a while. He actually causes David to flee Jerusalem. And it says that David fled barefoot and weeping with his enemies throwing rocks at him. Not a proud moment for David. But David, because God had his back, was able to take back the throne from Absalom. But then once again, instead of addressing Absalom's betrayal and his hatred and what's going on there, David just decides, let's just forget the whole rebellion thing, right? Let's just let bygones be bygones and move forward with our lives. But Absalom did not want to do that. His hatred would not be quenched and he would not quit. And so he rallies together another army and goes to war with his father. And 20,000 men died in this civil war. 20,000, an absurd number. And it was during the final battle of the civil war that Absalom meets his humiliating fate. Because remember, he's not just going to war with his father, David. He's going to war with God because God appointed David to be king of Israel, not him. And so one day, as Absalom is riding into battle through a forest on his donkey, his long, luxurious locks of hair get caught in the branches of a great oak tree. And this is a direct quote from scripture. He was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule he was riding just kept on going. Uh, And so Absalom is hanging by his famous hair in this forest. And then one of David's commanders happens upon him and he decides enough is enough. And he throws three javelins into the heart of Absalom. And the story of David and Absalom ends when David receives news about his son's fate. In 2 Samuel 18, 31 through 33, and I want us to read it together. 2 Samuel 18, 31 through 33. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hands of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well, though, with uh, the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you, for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son my son. An absolutely heartbreaking ending to a story that reads a lot like a Shakespearean tragedy. 
David, man after God's own heart, king of Israel, mighty warrior, he refused to address the sin that was running rampant in his life and the lives of his children, and the consequences were devastating. He left, left his daughter desolate. Two of his sons were killed, and 20,000 men lost their lives in an unnecessary civil war. This story is a staggering illustration of what happens when sin goes unaddressed. How sin tends to create more sin, and then it multiplies exponentially. It's like a snowball that turns into an avalanche. The lust of Amnon turned into sexual assault, turned into his murder, turned into a civil war. And what we need to understand from this story is that while our sins might not start a civil war, hopefully not, uh, if our sins go unchecked long enough, they will have devastating consequences for you and for any unfortunate soul who's caught in your path. And the only way to prevent that from happening is true and honest repentance. So what I want us to do is I want us to examine what true repentance looks like. First, let me say a few things that repentance is not. Repentance is not about wallowing in guilt and shame. Right? It's not about, woe is me, I'm the worst, I don't deserve to live. That's not what repentance is. Repentance literally means a turning back, right? a reversal of one's course. That is repentance. I was going to go eat at Taco Bell, but instead I'm going to have a Greek salad. Right? I was going to buy a new pair of Jordans, but instead I'm going to pay off my credit card debt. I was going to watch the news, but instead I'm going to have a root canal. Right? True repentance is meant to lift you up. It's not meant to get you down. It is life-giving. Repentance offers healing. It offers freedom, right? Repentance is recognizing that we have veered off the path that God has designed for us, a path that is designed to lead to life in the fullest, and instead we are now on a path that's going to lead to pain and to suffering and to disaster. And so we course correct so that we can find ourselves back in step with God. Repentance is what keeps the snowball from turning into the avalanche. And so what I want us to do is I want to explore three characteristics of what true and honest repentance looks like. And the first is that repentance requires confession. Repentance requires confession. Or as the great American poet Sean Carter said, you can't heal what you never reveal. And so I'll be honest up front. Confession is the most difficult and uncomfortable part of repentance because nobody wants to dig up all the things that they're ashamed of. That's a hard thing to do, right? But we must. We must confront and own up to the raw truth of our sin, right? We, I'm, and I'm not talking about doing surface-level confession stuff like, ah, I was driving down the wetter during rush hour and I got so angry and I cursed and uh, forgive me. If you're not angry while driving down rush hour, uh, down the during rush hour, then you're either a saint or a sociopath, right? <laughs> I'm talking about you have to be honest with yourself and you have to root out the sin that is nestled deep in your heart because that sin is like a vampire. It's hiding deep in the shadows and it's slowly draining you of your life. And so you cast light on that sin by acknowledging that it's there. Right? And I know this is a painful thing to do. Many times I've had to confront and own up to sin that honestly would make you think less of me. And it hurts. And I know that there are a lot of us here today 
who are carrying around sin that you would never dream of confessing. Maybe it's something like a long-running affair that you are terrified. If someone were to find out, it would just rip apart your family. And so your life is now a series of hidden emails and secret phone calls and of constant paranoia that someone's going to find out. Or maybe it's anger and hatred for a family member or a friend. Anger that felt justified at first, but then like Absalom, you just let that anger fester and grow into hatred, and now it just consumes your thoughts. And all you can think about is what you would do or what you would say if you ever found yourself in the right place at the right opportunity with that person. And it's making you bitter. Or maybe it's addiction that you are too embarrassed to seek help for. And so you walk that fine line between pretending everything is okay and always thinking about where and when you're going to get your next fix. It is incredibly difficult to dig up those kinds of sins, but can't you see how those sins are enslaving us? They control our thoughts. They consume our mind. They have power over you. So what I'm saying is take the power back. Cast light on that sin by acknowledging that it's there, by confessing it to God and to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who helped end the apartheid in South Africa, He said this about repentance and reconciliation. He said, true repentance and reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. Because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial repentance and reconciliation can only bring superficial healing. And this is an area where David and his sons really struggled. Yes, David ended up owning up to his sins concerning Bathsheba, but only after Nathan confronted him about it, and only after he tried to hide it multiple times. And then he goes and tries to hide the sins of his sons, Amnon and Absalom, leaving many people dead and Tamar desolate. You can't just ignore sin and hope that it goes away on its own. Sin is not like your childhood bedroom where you can throw all of your mess in the closet and then declare it clean, or your adult bedroom if you're me. Sin is more like the dirty blueberry muffin pan. If you leave it alone long enough, it's going to take on a life of its own. But when you're honest about your sin and you bring it into the light, that is the first step towards healing and towards reconciliation, not only for you, but for anyone who has been affected by your sin. The second thing we need to know about repentance is that repentance is proactive. Repentance is proactive. So repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. That's an apology. And that's a good thing to do. You should do that. But that's not repentance. And repentance is not just confession. Again, that's an important first step. And you need to do that. But that's not what repentance is. Repentance is actively taking steps to move away from your sin and towards God and towards reconciliation with anyone who your sins may have affected. And those steps have to be practical and they have to be tangible. I'll give you kind of a goofy illustration of what I mean. When I was 21, I decided that I needed a new laptop. Uh, Needed. And I was working at Best Buy at the time. And if I wanted to, I could have planned and saved up for a few months and then bought a moderately priced laptop. But no, I needed a laptop immediately. So I decided it would be a good idea to open up a Best Buy credit card. The problem was that I had zero credit history. 
So I asked my very kind and loving father if he would co-sign, and he agreed. Not only that, but he offered to pay the first month's payment as like a present because he's awesome. So there I am, 21, young and stupid, with a brand new credit card. And of course, I decide that I don't want just any normal laptop. I need the most expensive laptop in the entire store. Did I consider how much the monthly payments would be? No, absolutely not. Did I consider the fact that I work part-time at Best Buy making $10 an hour? No. Did I consider that I was already really irresponsible with my money and I was living paycheck to paycheck? Absolutely not. I needed that new laptop now, regardless of whether or not I could afford it. And of course, I couldn't afford it. And so my dad makes the first payment on that laptop, as promised. And then guess how many payments I made after that? Zero. I made zero payments on that laptop. So I started getting mail. Uh, Your payments are late. They are overdue. And every time I would get one of those letters, I would open it up and think, oh, yeah, man, I really need to take care of this later. All right? And, I, and eventually this huge pile of mail uh, formed. And then that mail turned into phone calls from Best Buy. Every time I got a phone call, I would just hit ignore. And then I started getting phone calls from debt collectors. Then, I started, then my dad started getting phone calls from those debt collectors because he was the co-signer. And it was when that happened that my sins were exposed. They were brought to the light. My dad calls me and says, I just got a call from a debt collector. And immediately my stomach drops. Like, uh, and he, he starts hitting me with all these questions. Why would you buy a laptop that you know you can't afford? Right? Did you consider how this was going to hurt your credit? Did you consider how this was going to hurt my credit too since I'm a co-signer? And honestly, I hadn't even thought of that. I hadn't thought about how my negligence could affect other people. And so immediately, I apologize and I ask for forgiveness, which my dad, he grants me that forgiveness. And on top of that, he offers grace by buying the laptop outright. He makes the rest of the payments. Now, if the story stopped there, if I was convicted of my sin and I confessed it and I asked for forgiveness and I received that forgiveness, would that be considered repentance? No. Because what would happen then if I immediately go and open up another credit card and start making irresponsible purchases again? Then I'm right back in the same mess that I was in before. No, repentance is course correction. So I had to make some changes. I had to learn how to alter my spending habits. I can't go see every new movie that comes out. I can't buy every new video game and I can't eat out all the time, right? And I had to learn how to set up automatic payments. I'm a very forgetful person. Even if I have the money, sometimes I just forget to make the payments. Right? So I set up automatic payments to prevent that from happening. And I had to learn how to make more sensible spending choices. Even if I have the money to buy the nicest, most expensive laptop in the store, that doesn't mean that I should buy the nicest, most expensive laptop in the store. Right? Those were all practical, tangible steps that I had to make to get back on course. And the same is true when we're dealing with our sin. Proactive repentance is not just recognizing that we've stumbled off course, right? It is taking practical, tangible steps towards obedience to God and towards reconciliation and healing with anyone who your sins may have affected. And let me say this, if this is all new to you, this idea of confession and repentance is all brand new and and you don't even know where to start. Or maybe this isn't new, but you still, you don't know what the first step should be. You hear me saying, take practical, tangible steps. You're like, I don't even know. I don't know where to start. I highly recommend that you sign up for the Kairos Conference. 
that is a perfect first step. If you don't know where to start, sign up for Kairos. Let your brothers and sisters in Christ help show you where to start, help lead you into healing and forgiveness that the Holy Spirit offers. The third thing and the most important thing that we need to know about repentance is that we repent because we are forgiven. We repent because we are forgiven. Now, this seems backwards, right? Logic would tell us it should be the other way around, that we are forgiven because we repented. But that's not how it works. And that is the scandalous good news of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we realized the error of our ways and asked for forgiveness, Christ died for us. Not after we repented, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All of us. Every single person here. Even if you feel like your sin has spiraled out of control. Even if you feel like your sin went from a snowball to an avalanche a long time ago. There is no end to the grace and redemption of Jesus Christ. His love and his forgiveness knows no bounds. Our sins were nailed with him on that cross. David's sins, Absalom's sins, Amnon's sins, my sins, your sins. Even the very men who crucified Jesus, Jesus pleaded with his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't say forgive them once they've realized the error of their ways. Forgive them once they've had a change of heart. No, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're lost. They don't realize the magnitude and the weight of their own sin. And so Jesus Christ, son of God, came and he died underneath the weight of that sin. And then three days later, he was raised from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the grave, is given to each and every person who accepts the free gift of grace that Jesus offers us. It's that spirit who helps us to identify and dig out the sin that's rooted deep in our hearts. It's that spirit who helps illuminate the path towards obedience and towards reconciliation and healing. When we receive that Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes to the dark world that we've been living in, and then he shows us that a new world is possible, a world that is full of the love and radiance of the living God. And when we do repent, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are set free from the clutches of sin in our life. We are set free from things like lust, which so controlled Amnon that it made him physically ill. We are set free from constantly feeling like we have to hide and and cover up our sins. We are set free from having to worry all the time about what's going to happen when our sins are exposed. We are set free from the constant stress of, of of trying to be better, of trying to be perfect. Because we are better than perfect. We are forgiven. And so what I want us to do now is I want us to celebrate that forgiveness by taking communion together. Communion is one of the most powerful, most potent forms of worship that we have. Whenever we gather around the table, we are gathering with the church all over the world. Not only that, but we're gathering with the church from the last 2,000 years. And when we gather, we are reminded, we remember that Christ's body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for our sins. And we are reminded of what that means for us, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that there is healing and peace. 
we are also reminded of, of what that means about who we are in the world. We are reminded that we are called to be Christ's body here on earth. We are called to be his hands, his feet, his loving kindness to the world. And we give thanks. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and blessed it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this is my blood poured out for your sins. As often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, remember me. So the way that we do communion around here is that we practice open table. That means that uh, we believe Jesus welcomes anyone and everyone to his table. And so in just a few moments, uh, the ushers will come down the aisle and they will dismiss you to come up front and you'll get in line and then you'll take one of the gluten-free crackers and you'll dip it into the juice. And then after that, you'll head back to your seat um, where you can pray uh, and just reflect. And I want to highly encourage you to take advantage of this holy moment. Don't run out. Don't be in a hurry to leave. Be here in this holy moment. Invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to transform your heart, your mind, your soul. Before uh, we get started, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. So if everyone would bow their head and close their eyes. First, I'm going to ask that everyone here just invite the Holy Spirit into this room and into your hearts. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Please invade our hearts now. Convict us of our sin. Because without your power, we are helpless against our sin. But with you working in our lives, transforming our hearts and our minds, sin has no control over us. So Holy Spirit, we ask you, cast light on our sin so that we can experience the freedom and the healing that only you can offer. So right now, where you are in your seats, I want you to take a moment, confess those sins that have been brought to the light. You don't have to, don't do it out loud, but silently, wherever you are, confess those sins and confess without fear. Remember that God always receives your confession with grace, never condemnation. Father, we are sinners, each and every one of us. And knowing that you still love and forgive us while we were yet sinners, that makes your grace even more of a staggering gift. And so I pray that the truth of your love and grace are firmly embedded in our hearts as we confess our sins to you today. I pray that this confession grants us healing and peace and that by, the power, by your power, the chains of sin are broken so that we can live a life that is truly free. Father, we also ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate the path of repentance. Make our next steps obvious. And then give us courage to take those steps. And I pray that your Holy Spirit illuminates the path of reconciliation with anyone who may have been caught in the path of our sin. Father, I want to take a moment to pray now for those who may have been caught in the destructive path of someone else's sin. We read a story like Tamar's and it is heartbreaking because she was an innocent victim. In this story, she did nothing wrong, yet she was still left desolate because of her brother's sin. And for some people here, 
this story might hit uncomfortably close to home. And that's not a guess. Statistics tell me that's true. One in six women are survivors of sexual assault, and that is a devastating reality. So Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray for healing for anyone here who has been a victim of sexual assault and domestic abuse. I pray that they don't see David as an example of your love, someone who sweeps sin and abuse under the rug in order to protect his son and silence the victim. No, you sent your innocent son into our world to bear the weight of our sin because of your perfect love for us so that no one would ever have to be left desolate again. So I pray that they know that truth to be true and that you grant them healing and peace. And for us as a church, I pray that we are a place of solidarity and safety for victims of abuse. I pray that we truly become your body here on earth so that anyone trying to escape abuse can run into the loving arms of Jesus. No one's story should end like Tamar's, not when the body of Christ is right here. So as we get ready to come to your table, remind us of what it looks like to be your hands and feet in loving kindness in a place of healing and safety. And we give thanks for your sacrifice on the cross for us. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that I pray. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hi, I'm Dan Slagle. Welcome to another edition of Postscript. Today I'm with Adam McIntyre who brought us a, a great message entitled Sin and Effect. It's a look at... Uh, a very unfortunate episode in the life of David and his children. Uh, I thought you did a great job tackling a very complicated story. Really uh, excellent bringing out the the pertinent points. A couple of questions have come in. Uh, First of those, in what translation are we told David did not punish Amnon? Right, so it's not necessarily one particular translation. Um, So... That was uh, that part of the verse was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which are ancient documents that date back to mm-hmm. a few hundred years before the time of Christ, even. Um, and uh, so, some study Bibles, some commentary Bibles include that addition to the verse. Others just have a footnote that directs you to the bottom. Um, usually, the Bibles that include things like the Apocrypha mm-hmm. um, and the Septuagint, also the Greek translation of the Old Testament, also adds that part. Um, that edition of the verse. But it's not one particular translation. It just depends on what kind of, like, if it's a study Bible or commentary Bible or, or something like that. I see. Yeah. Uh, a, a manuscript right. issue. Okay. Exactly. Good, good. Uh, a, a little more complicated question okay. came in as well. Um, you made a point uh, in the sermon that repentance uh, actually comes after right. forgiveness. And this listener wanted to know... How can that be? And okay. does it not eventually lead to uh, a position of universalism? Sure. I can totally understand how that would be uh, confusing. Um, and so the answer is no. Uh, it does not lead to a position of universalism. Um, so kind of the mechanics of the way it breaks down is that Christ offers forgiveness, that free gift of grace to everyone, mm-hmm. regardless of what you've done, who you are. Everyone has offered that gift. However, we still have to choose to accept it, mm-hmm. right? And so not everyone is going to accept that free gift of grace. So that's why it's not 
universalism. And then once we have accepted that forgiveness, that is when we... Exercised our faith. Right. Okay. Exactly. And so once we've accepted it, that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. Not before, but after we've accepted mm -hmm. that free gift of grace. And then it's the Holy Spirit who leads us, who convicts us, and then leads us to a place of repentance. But that conviction, that repentance can't happen um, until we receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and we receive the Holy Spirit once we accept that free gift of grace and forgiveness. So that's kind of the way it breaks down. Yeah, otherwise, at least at the point of salvation, uh, a human being could claim some ownership exactly. uh, over their salvation as if they had anything to do with it right. in the process. Exactly, We've had no, we have nothing to do with it. And you, and you can see that take place throughout the Gospels. And it was always very shocking to his followers. You know, Jesus, when he was talking to the woman at the well, he forgave her sins first, and then he sent her away and said, go and sin no more. Yeah. So the repentance takes place after the forgiveness. Gotcha. Uh, same thing with the paralyzed man. Uh, the paralyzed man came and asked for healing, and Jesus gave him forgiveness of sins first, mm -hmm. and then he received healing. Yeah. Right. But uh, again, I can understand why it's shocking, a little bit confusing, because logic tells us it should be the other way around. But uh, that's not how it works. That's what makes the gospel scandalous and, and it's good news. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I thought it was an interesting take. I, I had never heard that before and appreciated it. Um, I, I wonder, too, if the way we use the word repentance hmm. um, has become synonymous with the act of receiving forgiveness. In, in people's yeah. minds, it's just all kind of lumped together. Right. And this delineates, no, there is on the one hand an exercise of faith whereby right. you receive the forgiveness then there is the spirit-empowered decision to make a, a 180 and go in the opposite direction. That's exactly right. Okay. You said it way better than I could ever say it. That's exactly right. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks, man. Good Absolutely. message. Appreciated. Yeah. Absolutely. And thank you for watching. Hope you'll join us next time on Postscript. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.